ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. This is the Acts of the Apostles. For more information, go to carolinesprings.church. I don't know if you saw the football last night, the, the Bulldogs versus GWS, and there was uh, this great match happening. There was less than a kick in it all game in the five minutes. That's how I feel. Like There's five minutes to go in full time, except I know the result. God's won, and I get to declare it this morning to you. So that's, I'm filled with great joy, not nerves. Um, so that's, that's exciting. So I want to pray for us that God would speak to us this morning and fill us with the same joy and the same spirit that the early church had. Um, so let's bow our heads, assume whatever prayer position you find most Christ-like, and let's, let's just pray for that. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sufficient for us, that when we read it, we read that it's gritty, that we read of great persecution and great suffering, but we also read of a great God who has overcome all of this, of his plans that cannot be buffeted, that cannot be stopped regardless of foe. Father, I pray that we have the same mindset as this early church, praying earnestly for Peter this morning, that the words that you have delivered to me through your word would pierce us like an arrow to our hearts, that we'd be convicted to make all of life all about Jesus all the time until the day of our death where we get to be with our Savior and worship him for eternity. Father, I pray that in the name of Jesus who has died to set us free. Amen. Uh, friends, as, as Albert has mentioned this morning, we're going to be continuing our journey through the book of Acts. And uh, I'm aware that there'll be some people every week who haven't been journeying with us each and every Sunday. So I want to set the scene a little bit. So what, we, what we've found, our big meta theme, which Albert read out to us, is that the book of Acts is all about ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lordship of Jesus. And we see this each and every week. Okay, I, think, I think we've got it on the screen. That's, that's good work. And so this has happened. We have Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes down and empowers the early church. And there's this explosion of Christianity. You see Peter's first sermon and thousands become Christians and make Jesus uh, their savior. And it just keeps going. There's this little community that gets formed where they sell everything and no one has any need. They daily meet to encourage one another and evangelize the lost and those who don't know Jesus yet. And then disaster happens. All throughout Acts we read time and time again, the early church leaders get thrown in prison. Stephen, whose entire job was to look after widows, is executed via stoning. And as he prays, he prays for Saul, the great persecutor of the church, who later becomes a Christian. And now we find ourselves in Acts chapter 12. There's been an explosion of faith throughout the, the Middle East, throughout Jerusalem, throughout Antioch. And uh, it's, it's going off. And the thing is that what's happening isn't this quiet, retiring Christianity. There's not the kind of private faith that you have it in your homes and you read your Bible and you pray your prayers, but you don't really tell anyone else about it. This is a public disturbance. These guys keep going, getting thrown in prison, not because they have this faith, but because they keep telling everyone about it. They're so excited about Jesus that they don't care about the suffering. They don't care about the persecution. They just want to make all of life all about Jesus and help others do the same. And so we come to the book of uh, the chapter Acts 12, and we get introduced to this guy called Herod. 
Now, he's the great, uh, gra- well, not the great grandson, he's the grandson of the original Herod who uh, performed the census in the early books of the New Testament where Mary, uh, Joseph and Mary would go to be counted. So he's his great grandson, but this guy is uh, he's a little unhinged. So, for one, he's a playboy, he's a party boy. He's been thrown in prison before, and the only reason he has this kingship is that he had childhood mates who've boosted him up into this position where he has authority. So he's come from this lowly place to this high place, and he's insecure. He's Jewish by birth, doesn't probably hold it by conviction, but he's, he's insecure about it. So he's trying to carry favor with the Jewish uh, conglomerate uh, in, his, in, in his kingship. And so what does he do? He starts killing Christians. So we read in, in verse 1, and we'll just read verse 1 to 5. This is what it says. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that this, this was met with approval amongst the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. This guy's legit. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. And so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying for him. So, James, the brother of John, is killed. One of the apostles has been murdered. Herod's not messing around. And he grabs Peter and he chucks him in prison. And the only reason Peter probably hasn't been killed yet is the fact that it's the festival of unleavened bread, which is a sacred festival for the Jews who he's trying to curry favor with. And you can't do any executions during that festival of unleavened bread. So there's this mercy for Peter. He's been kept in jail. But the thing that stands out to me is how many men are guarding this dude? He's a fisherman. This is not double O Peter that we're talking about. He's a fisherman who, like six chapters earlier, the Pharisees described as an ordinary man who has no redeeming qualities. He's a fisherman whose knowledge is of fish and Jesus. That's the two things he knows, and they deem him dangerous enough to chain him to two guards, one on either side, and have him watched by four sets of guards for for the entire week. And the only reason they do this is because this dude keeps getting out of prison, and they can't work out what is going on. Early on in the book of Acts, Peter just walks away. Then, later on, there's an earthquake. Peter walks away. And so Herod's like, I'm going to take this seriously now. I'm not mucking around. I'm going to chain you to two of my best soldiers. There's going to be a guard that swaps over every couple of hours. There is no way that you're escaping my clutches. And mark the day that the festival of unleavened bread finishes. It's over. It's over. It says in verse 4, Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. And we have to believe that his intention for this public trial wasn't so that Peter would get a nice house. It's not so, oh, no, Peter's a good guy. We should give him lots of money for his gospel. Because one thing that we learn about the mob in the book of Acts is that the mob kills the mob maims. That's its job. It gets worked up into this frenzy. It was the mob who demanded the death of Jesus. It was the mob that demanded the death of Stephen and killed him. The intentions for Peter are not good. And so 
The whole church is praying for him. Verse 5, it says, Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The Greek word for earnestly here sort of has the connotation of stretching themselves. So the early church was stretching themselves in prayer for Peter. This wasn't the occasion where they're sort of just throwing up a prayer idly. They're intentionally, consciously praying for Peter in such a way that it stretches their very soul. You know, and, it, and it strikes me as odd, and it would have struck as odd for the Roman authorities, because if, if I was in the early church, the thing that I would be planning is terrorism. I'll be like, I need to get Peter out. How do I get some explosives? God's already, God's already made some earthquakes. He's done, he's done some miraculous things. I need to, we need to get Peter out. He's, an, he's a leader in the early church. He's the guy that Jesus said he would build his church upon, the rock that he would build his church upon. This guy can't die. We can't let this happen. How are we going to get him out? Let's get some donkeys as a distraction or something. The Romans would have looked upon them with disgust. Instead, the church is found praying constantly for Peter's salvation. Time and time again, this is what happens. So we go on to verse 6. By the way, we're only going to spend a little bit of time in, in this actual story because the story is pretty straight up. It's gritty, but straight up. We're going to be bouncing over and draw some themes out. So I do advise you, if you've got a Bible, to hold it open um, because we're going to be bouncing around the New Testament pretty soon. But this is what it says, verse 6. We'll go on to verse 12. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Like Peter's not busting out of this. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. So, Peter's in prison. He's got guards on either side who are chained to him. There's sentries at the door. There's multiple gates that he has to get out of. Peter has to be a master thief to get out of this thing. But instead, the Lord sends an angel, and he busts Peter out of prison once again. I think the interesting thing is Peter's just sleeping. It's probably the night before his execution. He's not really, he's not really uh, upset. He's not really sweating with fear like I imagine that I would be if I was going to be executed. He's just, he's just sleeping. In fact, when the angel wakes him up, he's not even sure about what's going on. He thinks he's having a dream. He thinks he's having a vision. He, he's sort of like, he's, been a, he's, he's just out of it. He's, he's half asleep, and the angel keeps leading him through the gates, the, 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 the soldiers don't even know what's going on. They're, they're not too concerned because they're, like, they, they don't even see it. So Peter is led out of prison. He's busted out once again. Peter is safe. 
And he comes to his senses and says, I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. So Peter comes to his senses. He's out of prison. He's just put on the, the minimal amount of clothing that would, uh, he would require in public. They probably don't give him luxurious clothing in prison. And he comes to his senses and goes, okay, I've been busted out again. What do I need to do? I need to go see my mates. I need to go see the church that's been praying for me. So we go on to verse 12. And we're just going to read to the end. It says this. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord has brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion amongst the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. And after Herod had a thorough search made and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards in order that they be executed. So Peter has been busted out of prison. And the first thing that he can think of is, I need to go to the church. I need to go to the leaders. I need to tell them what's happened so we can rejoice and be thankful about what God has done. And the thing that, I, that really struck out to me, that really struck out to me, is the fact that God has answered their cynical prayers. See, Peter finds them probably praying for him right at this moment, but when Rhoda comes in and says, Peter's at the door, they're like, nah, nah, that's not going to happen. That's not how this works. We pray for Peter, and we might pray that he has a nice death. We're hoping that God would bust him out, but Peter probably won't, he won't have that happen. That's not how these things work. God has answered their cynical prayer to him. Their prayer that they didn't think would work has worked, and they're arguing about, oh, is it Peter? Is it his, is it his ghost? Is it, is it some an angel that, that, that Peter has? There's some Jewish superstition there. But Peter's at the door. They celebrate. They pray. And Peter leaves. And we don't see much more of Peter in the rest of the book of Acts until much later. So that's, that's the story. It's pretty straight up. It's pretty gritty. James gets executed. Peter gets thrown in prison. There's guards on either side of him. The angel busts Peter out of prison. He goes to a church that's earnestly stretching themselves in prayer for Peter. And he goes and rejoices with them and goes on to do more work for the kingdom of God. And I, wanna, I just want to draw some themes out of this that I think are going to be really important for us. Because here's the, here's the straight up message that would be really easy to preach. Peter's in prison and the church prayed and God answered. That's, that's a straight-up application of the text, right? Peter's in prison. There's nothing that can be done. There's no act of terrorism that will bust him out. The church is stretching themselves in, pa- in prayer for Peter, and God answers. Praise God, the end of the sermon. But here's, the, here's the problem, is that the church would have prayed for James, and James was executed. So what do you do when... In this life where it seems there's so many blessings, there's so many blessings in the book of Acts, what do you do when it seems like everything is chaotic and out of control and God's not having his hand over all of this and God doesn't seem to be answering his prayers? 
what do you do then? Because we know that that's not true. We know that God is in control. We know that God doesn't operate ambulances. He doesn't operate a triage. He's not in control of the emergency ward, that his hand is over all things and he's never surprised. But what do you do with an early church that prays for both James and Peter and only one prayer is answered? What do you make of that? This is the question that gets thrown in the face of Christian believers time and time again. What do you do with the problem of suffering? What do you do with the, with the life of James? What had he done? He hasn't done anything wrong. He didn't do anything to deserve his death. He's, he's a leader in the early church. He's someone that the early church would have relied upon. He's one of the beloved sons. He's a son of thunder. He's got good friends praying for him, and he dies. And this is the question that Christians are pestered with. Not pestered, asked time and time again. How can God be sovereign if children die? Where's God when there's war? Where's God when... Um, where's, where's God in the persecution? Where's God when there's chronic illness? Where's God when someone loses their child in, in childbirth? Where's God in depression? Because if he was sovereign, wouldn't he do something? Wouldn't he have his hand over this? Isn't his hand for good? This is the question. And uh, I wish I had an answer for you because the answer from my end is I don't really know. I wish I had a nice tight little bow that I could explain why God has uh, saved Peter but James was executed. I wish I had a tight bow that I could wrap up and deliver to you and we could go home and have our comforts eased but it's not that easy I don't think. The only way that I can possibly conceive it is, is I'm 26 years old, right? Now, for a lot of you, that seems really young, but I feel like I've packed a lot of life in my 26 years. I've traveled overseas multiple times on my second degree. I've, I've moved to Caroline Springs. That's pretty hectic, right? I've done a lot of things, but compared to God, I'm still small and sad, Compared to him, my knowledge of things, my understanding of things is small and sad. So there's some things in which I better not be able to understand him, else he's not God. I've got a little niece called Violet. She's 14 months old, and she's just got past the stage where she's afraid of my face, uh, which is a really positive development for me. Um, and so we've been hanging out a lot lately. She's been really uh, clinging with me, which is good. Now, I think I've got a, a photo of her on the screen. Um, so this is, this is my little niece, Violet. This is us at a party yesterday. Um, so she's, she's super cute. And uh, last weekend, we went to Healsville Sanctuary together. And so we were hanging out, and I was carrying her around, and she really wanted to pet some of the animals. And for most of the animals, that's, that's totally okay. You can pet the kangaroo. It probably won't do that much to you, hopefully. But then we came to the exhibits with the Tasmanian tigers and the lace monitors. And she, she wanted a better look, so I held her up so she could get a better look. And then suddenly she starts pushing down on my arms because she wants to get in the enclosure with the Tasmanian tigers. And I'm holding on and she's, she's saying, no, I want to be in with the Tassie tigers. I want to be in with the lace monitors. And I know, I know that despite what children's cartoons tell you, that toddlers... And lace monitors don't mix and become the best of friends in an odd job comedy. I know that's not true. 
My, everything that I've understood in my last 26 years tells me that that can't be true. And so I can only conceive if that's the difference between me being 26 years old and my little niece Violet being 14 months old. Can you imagine the difference in understanding between a finite being like myself and an infinite being like God? Because if I, who's like a Jew on the morning grass, who leaves instantly compared to the infinite God, the Alpha and the Omega, the creator of all things, who, who, who created all things that are and will be, who has always existed and will always exist, if I can conceive of what's going on, then he's probably too small. And I wish I had some theories for how that makes sense of our suffering. I think there are some. John Piper often talks about God being the kind of general who allows tactical defeats for strategic victories. I sort of like that because it allows the fact that this is a defeat. Like the death of James is a defeat for the gospel. It's a defeat for the early church. It's a defeat for the leadership. It's a defeat for Christianity. But the fact that I'm standing here in front of you 2,000 years later in Caroline Springs the far ends of the earth, preaching the gospel and holding tight to the scripture is evidence that God has allowed a strategic victory to come out of the death of James. So I don't have... That's a theory, but I, I don't know. It might not, that not be, might not be true. So what do you do? How do you, how do you cling to God when you're dealing with the fact that everything seems chaotic and it looks like God's not in control even when you know He is. How do you do? What do you do in those moments? The only thing that we have as Christians is to cling onto the cross of Christ. Because when we look to the cross, we're reminded that God has initiated His love for us even when we were wretched sinners, that God has made the first move towards us that he has taken our sin upon himself and instead given us his righteousness and declared us sons and daughters of God. So in the worst moments, I can be reminded that even at my very worst, God was for me and not against me. The very worst thing about me is that I'm a traitor against God and the way he treated me then was to die for me. So if that is true, then even during the worst days, when it seems like everything is overwhelming, when it seems like the waves are too high, like my soul has cracked in two, I can cling onto the cross of Christ because I know that this is true and I know that it declares God is good for me. And I need you to get this because for the Christian, it, no, no matter how bad our days are, no matter how horrifyingly overwhelming, no matter how painstakingly agonizing and filled with anxiety our days are for the Christian, bad days always lead to better days, always leading to best days. And the reason I know that is true is because everyone who's saved, everyone who calls himself a Christian, everyone who declares himself a son and daughter of the King, their home is not here but in heaven, where everything will be made right. We do not live for today, we live for tomorrow. And there's, there's a bunch of scripture that, that tells us that this is true. So here's, here's John 16, verse 33. We can get my cute niece away now. This is, jo, uh, this, is, this is John writing, Jesus speaking. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
Jesus is speaking to his disciples and saying, don't be expecting a comfortable life. Don't be expecting for things not to happen. Don't be expecting to have a life free of persecution. Take heart, I still win. I am the victor at the end of the day. Now, these are the verses we run to. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And this verse seems uh, really good. It's one of those verses that makes its way onto Christian coffee mugs all the time. And we sort of just see, yeah, God will make all things work together for my good. That works out. I like things working out together for my good. What God's saying is that in every circumstance, I will take what is evil and make it into what is good. It might not be right now, but it's happening. And see, verses like this are cherished for me because when I was 13 and diagnosed with several chronic illnesses, this is what I clung on to. This is not an idle theory for me that I think that maybe God works all things for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. Either in that moment when I've lost all my friends and I'm thinking about killing my own life and I'm thinking about all the things that I've lost, either this is true or it's not. And I know it to be true. So we cling to this. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1 to 4 says this. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And what he's saying is don't, don't be expecting a perfect life. What Paul is writing is saying this body that we have is like a tent. If you know anything about a tent compared to a house, tents leak. Tents get buffered by the wind. Tents get knocked over. Tents get, uh, get smashed and ripped apart compared to homes. He's saying that's what our bodies are like. This body will get sick. This body will break down. This body will experience persecution. This body will experience suffering. But there is much more ahead of us. There is much more ahead of us. And I know that what, what he's saying is like, that this life is like camping and we just want to go home. This is like camping and we want to go home. And I know there's some of us who really like camping. So I like camping. I like camping a lot. Um, and so for our first uh, anniversary, for Sarah and I, we went camping down at Wire River. And it was, it was great because we, we camped on the beach. And so we woke, we woke up and the beach was right there. And there was no one else there. So, but that's not what Paul wants you to have in your head when he's talking about camping. He wants you to have the mindset of my mother-in-law who, when we headed down, texted us and says, maybe next year you could stay somewhere nice. That's the mindset that Paul wants us to have with this life. Maybe next year you could stay somewhere nice. Maybe tomorrow will be better. Maybe heaven, everything will be made right. This is like camping. And we get to go home to be with the King of Kings in the mansion. There will be suffering, but take heart. I love the way that Dwight Moody, who's a pastor uh, 
think hundreds of years ago, he, he wrote of this. And he wrote about his upcoming death. This is what he had to say. Not that. Is there a quote by Dwight Moody? There we go. It said, Someday you'll read in the papers, D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead, but don't you believe a word of it. For at that moment I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. For I was born of the flesh in 1837, and I was born of the Spirit in 1856. But that which is born of the flesh may die, that which is born of the Spirit will live forever. That's the mindset that Christians have. This flesh will pass away, but waters of the Spirit will last forever. We get more Jesus when we go to heaven. Things will get better. But in this life, we will groan. There will be days that you want to give up. There will be days when it feels like the anxiety is too much. Like the situations are overwhelming. And we just want to end it all. God is for us. So what does God do with evil? God's not the author of evil. He hasn't created evil to afflict us, but he uses evil for good. He uses things in our life that have been used for evil for the designs of Satan and the enemy, and he uses them for good. And at times, that's going to look differently. I think some, we'd always like it if just evil things turn out really good, like someone wanted to sue you, but instead they gave you $10 million. That would be a really good application of that verse for me. I would love that. But sometimes God uses discipline. Sometimes God uses hardship. Sometimes God uses rebuke to help you make all of life all about Jesus. I was reminded of a, of a story a couple of weeks ago. So one of my great joys is the fact that I get to hang out with youth each and every day, pretty much. From Monday, Monday to Friday, I get to hang out with our young people, and I get to hear them wrestle with Scripture, and I get to hear them wrestle with God, and I get to hear them wrestle with their own faith. And so I was really encouraged recently by Chev, who I told was I was going to tell a story about him, so he strategically sat up the back so no one could look at him. So Chev was a guy who, in year seven, I asked him, you know, what convinces you about God? And he told me that he was convinced about God because the Bible was written on paper, like, like every book, <laughs> okay? But, but four weeks ago, when we caught up as a youth ministry and we did this thing called Ecclesia where we gathered together and we ate fish and chips and we sang songs and we encouraged each other from the scriptures, I shared how I had a really tough week and that I felt like things were just piling up on me and I was clinging to 2 Corinthians where it says that momentary afflictions are are nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory. And and Chev takes me aside afterwards and says, I think I've got something for you, Jimmy. Um, I've got something from scripture for you. I'm like, oh, that's awesome, Chev. I'd love to hear it says, yeah, I've got something from Hebrews 12. And I'm like, dude, that's exactly what I need to hear. I, I'm, I'm surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, so let me throw off every sin that it, so many easily entangles and cast my mind to Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. That's what I need to hear. That's such an encouraging word, Chev. Thank you so much. And he said, no, no. I, uh, it's a bit, bit further down. 2 Corinthians, uh, sorry, Hebrews 12, verse 7. And this is, 
This is what it says. It says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? And if you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. So in that moment, I'm thinking, where is the nearest wheelie bin? I would like to put Chev in it. (laughs) But it's true, isn't it? Endure hardship is discipline because it's actually a sign that God loves us, God is for us, and God is making us more like Jesus. It was a good rebuke from one of my youth who rebuked me often enough for me to consider it a great joy and a great blessing. Thank you, Chev, both for your encouragement and also for me able to tell a funny story about you. Here's the point, though. Things never look chaotic to God. God doesn't operate ambulances. He doesn't operate triages. He's not late on the scene and thinking, what can we do to make this all right? He is above all things. He is over all things. His hand is sovereign. And he's making what is evil and meant to us for evil, he's making it good. And sometimes it's hard to reconcile. When we read the early chapters of Acts, I get upset. Stephen is killed. Stephen's main job was to hang out with widows. This is not some rough and tumble dude who brawled on the side and was involved in MMA. He was a a gentle guy filled with the Spirit, attesting to Jesus, who was killed because he did so. James is killed. Peter eventually killed. A lot of them are killed. These guys had sons and daughters and wives and partners. Peter, we, we know that Peter has a wife. We know that Peter has a family. We know these people grieve when they're thrown into prison. And so we do have to wrestle with that. But I think, I think that first theme, that God is always in control, only makes sense once we go to the second theme. And that's this. This is what we see time and time again in the book of Acts. And it's one of the most uh, glorious things that encouraged me so much that regardless of foe, regardless of opposition, the mission of God to declare the lordship of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem to Antioch and then to the ends of the earth cannot be stopped. There is nothing that can get in the way of this mission of Jesus being declared. Nothing can get in the way of the gospel. Peter gets thrown in prison, he gets busted out. Paul's the greatest, uh, Saul's the greatest uh, persecutor of the church, he gets converted. Time and time again, we see men and women used by God to bring about miraculous and incredible things because the gospel cannot be stopped. In fact, the more, that, the more pressure that gets poured onto it, the more pressure Herod pours on, the more he tries to kill people, the more he tries to kill people, the more he tries to throw people into prison, the greater the church grows. Like, let's just talk about Rome for a moment. Like, has anyone been to Rome? Like a, like a couple of people, right? Have you checked out their roads? The roads in Rome were built 2,000 years ago, and they still drive on them. The roads in Caroline Springs were built less than 20 years ago, and we constantly have to do upgrades on them because they're not good enough. Like, this thing is legit. They've stretched from Rome to Africa and further into India, and they have built roads that, 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 that we still drive on today with our cars, and this is the government that's opposing Christianity. 
This is the government that's feeding Christians to lions and sawing them in half and chopping off their heads and hanging them upside down. And here's what we know. In AD 351, there were what was, there's 350 million believers in Christ in the Roman Empire, which is 51.3% of all individuals in the Roman Empire, after undergoing persecution, after undergoing being fed to lions, they're the majority. The harder that you push on Christianity, the more it grows, the more it thrives, the more people make all of life all about Jesus. And that concerns me in some ways because it means that we are in far greater spiritual danger than many of our brothers and sisters in Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan. Because I am sure that when they come to meet together with their brothers and sisters, they have the same mindset as the church. They are stretching themselves in prayer because they know that persecution comes. They know that opposition comes. But for us, we rock up 30 minutes late to church and it's not a big deal. We're not grieved with urgency for the things of Christ. We can get around to our Bible reading later. We can get around to praying later. We can get around to making all of life all about Jesus at a time that's more convenient to us. But for these guys, there is no other time. There is no other space. There is no other time period that they have. It's now, and they must make all of life all about Jesus or they die. This morning, when we came into church, I know, because I know it in my spirit as well, that I can take it or leave it. If I miss a Sunday, I feel like it's no big deal, but it's not true. What, what, what I might say next, it might be shocking for some of you. It's all right, Jade, don't stress. I said that one of my greatest joys is hanging out with our young people. And they come to me with stories of how they're persecuted at school. We've had girls being assaulted physically. We've had both boys and girls being verbally assaulted, being cast as outsiders. And I know that it grieves them, but there's a part of me that rejoices when I hear of that. Firstly, because it shows that what they believe is affecting all of their life, that there isn't two people. There isn't this one person who's someone at youth and then someone else at school. But it also tells me that this is exactly what Jesus told us to expect. And for those guys and girls, there is no halfway in. There is no halfway out. They sure as hell know whether they follow Jesus or not. Because if you're getting physically assaulted at school, if Jesus isn't worth it, you give up. And so for us who don't experience that, sometimes I wonder, what are we missing out on? We're filled with comfort all around. But for me, if comfort doesn't lead us to a greater understanding of Christ, we should kill it. If comfort doesn't make us help, like help us make all of life all about Jesus, it should die. Friends, our boldness about this isn't in the statistics we read. It's not in the 350 million people who became converts in the early church. It's in the fact that the things of God, the mission of God cannot be thwarted. And there will come a time when the glory of God will be filling this place like the waters fill the oceans. And the crazy thing is that he's invited us into the adventure. He's invited us into the spreading of that, just like the book of Acts. He's invited us into more. And the thing is, once you get into it, once you start making all of life all about Jesus, you'll start finding other things boring. Because they are. They are boring compared to what God has prepared. 
I'm, I'm 26. I've just got past my crazy uh, years of, of 19 to 21 where I thought I could do anything. And I, I went up in a micro light, which is sort of like a hang glider with an engine attached, right? Compared to the mission of God to declare Jesus to the ends of the earth, it's boring. It's meaningless. If you want to risk something, if you want to risk your life for something, don't go parachuting. Go be a missionary. If you, if you want something that encapsulates your entire life, that you want to grow, don't buy a seat warmer for your car. Go plant a church in a place that's difficult, that needs the gospel, like the west of Melbourne. Right? The west is crying out for gospel-centered churches, and we're sitting here with nice cars. Let that sit for a moment. Because here's what is true. This is a quote by Matt Chandler. We can look to the screen. It's the next one, Ian, I think. The day will come when you will die, and it may be soon, and see all of history being rewritten from the halls of heaven, and the annals of history will not be filled with wars and kings. And let me add, it will not be filled with parachuting or hang gliding or nice seat warmers for your cars, There will be one story, the heroes will be the missionaries, and the victor will be seen clearly clearly as seen as Christ. This is the message of the church that cannot be thwarted. Jesus has already won. He cannot lose and invites us into spreading that. Church, join the adventure. Don't sit on the sidelines. Don't risk your life for something that's meaningless. There will be persecution. There will be bad days. There will be opposition. There will be times when you want to give up. But this is true. The mission of God cannot be thwarted. And there will come a time when you will see all of history being rewritten and the missionaries will be the victors and Jesus will be the great king. Friends, I'm just going to pray for us that this will be true for us. I know that I've, I've probably yelled a lot it's because I'm really passionate about this because I want this to be true for us because I fear that if this is not true that if we just go on towards this comfortable cultural Christianity that you're going to live a half life you're not going to experience the joy that God has for you you're not going to engage in the mission that God has for you and you'll get to meet him and be afraid of what you've missed out on so friends let's pray Father, we thank you for the book of Acts. We thank you that it does not pull punches. We thank you that when we read about the deaths of Stephen and James and Peter and Jesus, that it's not hidden away, that it's a central part of what it means to follow Jesus, that there will be opposition, there will be bad days, there will be persecution, there will be suffering. But for the Christian, that's because our home is not here but in heaven. Father, suffering would be hard to persevere with if we did not know that your mission cannot be thwarted, that we are already on the side of the winner, that we have already won. We are experiencing uh, V-Day. Now, the world might seem chaotic and things seem out of control, but we know that your hand is over it and you are orchestrating all things so at the end of the days, you will receive the glory, that you will be seen as the most glorious 
and we get to play a part. So Father, stir us so that we want to. Stir us so that we see a great dissatisfaction with parachuting and cars and things that our money doesn't need to be given to. Give us a great affection for planning churches, for going to be missionaries, for spreading the gospel, for making all of life all about Jesus all the time, Sunday to Sunday, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, from this day forth until we meet the King of Kings. Father, grant us that. For we pray in your Son's name. Amen.